Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Barry Coates all about the initiative that he's founded called Mindful Money. But we don't start there. We go back into his past and learn all about his career and his work overseas, his time as an MP, and then what it was that led him to begin this initiative, which is really looking at new trends like impact investing. What does it actually mean? I know you're going to enjoy this episode, and if you do, why not check out some of the 305 other episodes in the back catalog as well. There's lots of conversations and journeys that have been recorded now. And don't forget, there's a website at theseeds.nz, and it'd be great if you could subscribe to the show, leave a rating and review, and consider telling one other person about Seeds. Now let's get straight into this conversation with Barry. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Barry Coates, who's the founder and CEO of Mindful Money. Thank you for joining me. Kura, Stephen. Great to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation because you've been on my list for a long time to have on the podcast, actually. Um, but due to COVID and various things, we haven't been able to get together in person. So we're settling for the Zoom alternative. But I'm happy about that because I know that what you're doing is having a real impact um, because I've been meeting people who've said, oh, I saw this this fund listed here and, and it's it's you, it's what you're doing. So I'm really curious to find out the background to how you came to set it up, what it is that you're doing today and what the future might hold. Um, but before we get into that, let's go into the past. So can you describe what life was like for you when you were say five years old? Um, where were you living? And yeah, what was it like? Uh, five years old, my, my, my. Um... Go right back to the beginning. <laughs> I was in Auckland and in a uh, uh, fairly benign environment uh, with two sisters and parents and uh, a dog and uh, many of the things that that uh, people usually do. Um, I think I was a little bit precocious at that age, and uh, um, I think I yeah, can't say. Enjoyed a lot of things that kids do, sport, reading, and so on. You know, so so n- not a particularly eventful early childhood. Uh, and uh, and your your parents are sometimes they're big influences. What what sort of things were they involved in? So my father was was a uh, solicitor and uh, um, was was kind of from the old school about the law. So his whole thing was that law is is uh, the way he started it was a profession in order to help people, and he hated it becoming a commercial, cutthroat, uh, business-oriented uh, uh, market. And so he, he over time, became quite disillusioned with, with the law and, uh, um, you know, while having been deeply involved in it for, for many years, and uh, so they then shifted down to Tauranga when I was uh, about 10 years old. Uh, my mother was a um, uh, uh, early childcare uh, teacher and, and uh, did, did quite a lot of uh, charitable work. And uh, so, yeah, mm. uh, 
But my, I guess my father, my, my father was a, a, a pretty strong influence and, and he, he always uh, kind of had uh, headstrong moral judgment and, and uh, a, a pretty strong set of ethics. So, so that kind of rubbed off. Yeah. And that, that sort of tension that he felt, that was something that came through to you, even at a young age, you, you saw him reflecting on this, I guess, the commercialization of law and rather yeah. than the, we're here to do good and, and be a role in society. Yeah. And kind of by the time of my teenage years, I was, uh, I was expressing that through uh, a number of, of things that that uh, kind of was dissatisfaction with the environment around me. I, I had uh, I was a scholarship kid going to King's College, and and uh, I felt increasingly uncomfortable in the environment while enjoying the academic work and the and the sport. Uh, as an institution, I was increasingly kind of uh, both alienated and and a bit angry and. So I left after four years uh, and went out and worked for a year, which was very good for me. Mm. Uh, so, but, but, uh, and then at university, I, uh, I got involved in lots of different anti-nuclear issues and, and uh, uh, fighting for conservation and, and anti-all black tour and, and a whole lot of uh, um, support of the, the Maori landmark, et cetera. So, so, that that kind of um, issues and protesting background was was really strongly in my uh, in in my kind of early university years. Yeah, interesting. And you mentioned leaving high school. So was that leaving early? Was it to go out and work? What age were you at that time? Um, about seventeen, uh, actually. Uh, yeah, seventeen. And uh, um, so they had an accelerated program so basically I'd, I'd finished the study that I needed to in four years and so so I left there wasn't I didn't feel like staying and being part of the establishment uh, at the school so um uh, and then yeah and and, uh, and at so, that point I'm just curious at that yeah. point like 17 year old you were you thinking of it in those terms like the establishment like it was very clear to you where you fit within the system, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, I, I had um, uh, picked up some some fairly radical views, and and uh, was was very keen to change things that I saw were uh, unjust. And so that sense of of values and injustice had uh, had been pretty strongly inculcated, as well as a love of the environment and and uh, uh, particularly. Uh, kind of the uh um in a way not, not i mean i guess the spiritual side of of the environment it's it's that that uh feeling that you get in the new zealand environment and and you know i've traveled a, a lot over the years spent 24 years out of new zealand subsequently but it's that sense of place and the sense of our, our um our, our, our nature um yeah, which is really well expressed in in uh, in terms of Maori values, but but it it, uh, it it gave me a really strong sense of 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 environment to go along with uh, with with social justice. Yeah, and was that um, your decision to leave? Like, was your father behind that, or did he say, "Oh, you should go to university"? Or 
yeah, what was his reaction? Um, I think he, his reaction was uh, it would do you good to do a year's work and get out and and uh, um, and so that yeah that was fine. It was kind of slightly on the precondition that then I would later on go to university. So uh, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't entirely dropping out. It was uh, it was a bit more a transition year. Right. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So that time period then just places, I already can sort of tell from some of the things that you said you got involved in at university, but what years are we talking about in terms of that university era? So 74 to uh, 75 to 78. Right. And I left university with an economics degree and, and had no idea what I wanted to do with it. And I certainly didn't want to go and work for a New Zealand company and, and help them make more money. And so I went off to be a volunteer in, in Samoa at that stage called Western Samoa uh, and uh, basically worked for the Samoan government in, in helping promote uh, economic development opportunities, um, some of it in rural development, some of it small small uh, enterprises, etc. So that was that was absolutely wonderful for me to do. It 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 gave me a deep love of the Pacific Islands and and Samoa in particular that that exists today. I I, uh, I played rugby in Samoa, which was a really stupid thing to do for my health. And and the <laughs> people down the touchline used to say when I got the ball at fullback, they used to say Fasi Palangi, and I found it meant kill the white man. So. so <laughs> Uh, but but uh, but fabulous and 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 just completely love the society and and such a uh, such an amazing society and well I'd yeah. I'd love to find out more about it in a second just I'm curious though just going back to the university time because we've established that you're 17 years old you know you don't fit within the the system if you like you go yeah. and you work and then you come back but you study economics. Is that right? Like, what was your thinking behind that? Because economics, to me, it's kind of within the system. Were you hoping to learn more to then disrupt it? Or what was your logic? Yes, exactly. I mean, that, that, that economics is, is the foundation of, of much of the inequity and, and inequality, and, and as well as lack of attention to the environment. So, so to me, this was... Uh, a study of a way to influence uh, um, things in society. And uh, uh, so, yeah, that was a very much instrumental view of economics. And, uh, you know, sadly, I didn't get much of that kind of economics at, uh, at Auckland University. I got a little bit after, after it at Massey when I carried on and did some extramural study afterwards. But uh, um and still, still today, uh, the study of economics at universities is woefully lacking in a holistic and and uh, um, an integrated view of of uh, um, issues like distribution of income and benefit, like externalities from environmental pollution and and damage, and so so it's a very it's a very mechanical and partial view of mm. economics that uh, uh, th- that I think is is a deep problem in mm. in society because all these people are trained 
with a very myopic uh, view of, of economics. Yeah, unfortunately, it, it sometimes feels to me like it, it's become a subset of mathematics. Mm. And that mathematics, of course, it's all about percentages and returns and rates. Um, and, it, and it feels to me like sometimes that lacks the heart of what true economics is about, which is probably where we're going to end up with our conversation, you know, that that money and and the fiction of wealth and all of that is really about people and helping people to do better, you know, in their lives, which you can't necessarily measure with like what's the GDP or, um, you know, the external measures of how is an economy doing. Yeah. And thankfully, there are, there are uh, people who are uh, trying to change uh, the education uh, in economics, people like Hajun Chang at, at Cambridge University, uh, my old colleague from Oxfam, Dace, uh, Kate Raworth, who wrote Donut Economics. And, and so there, is, there are changes starting to happen. But uh, yeah. certainly in those days, it was a, it was a very... Uh, uh, as you say, a very mechanical view of, of uh, economics where the assumptions were abstracted from, from any reality. Uh, yeah. 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 So Samoa comes on your radar. Do you remember how that happened? <laughs> I'm just curious. Was it a job opening or did you know someone who said, oh, you should look at this opportunity no, through, to go? Or? Went through volunteer service abroad. So, so, okay. uh, and then there was a, uh, a sort of question of, of where I would go. And uh, uh, they don't actually, in those days, they didn't get many economists. It was mainly teachers or nurses or doctors. And and so uh, um, luckily for me, I, I got a great uh, uh, introduction to uh, what was called the Officia Akinai Mole Aina Samoa, so the Office of Economic Development in Samoa, and, and uh, um, really enjoyed the experience there. It was, uh, it was fantastic. Three years. Yeah. Okay. So it was three years. That's that's long enough where you actually have a place, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Very much. Very much. Yeah. So. And what were some of the things that you appreciated about the Samoan culture, the Samoan people? Um. I, I guess I guess the, the complexity of relationships that that uh, uh, in a relatively small island group. Um, uh, where people have have largely been there for a very long time across generations, there is a very very sophisticated society and an enormously sophisticated understanding of, of relationships. I love the strength of communities. I love the the way that people took care of each other and shared things. So that when I started living with someone family, I um, soon found that. All my family were. I was seeing them in town, dressed in my clothes, and uh, and that's you know you, there is no such thing as personal possessions. You 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 bring your your things to the family, and and that, that was fine. Um, so, but it was a it was it was a really special time, and and uh, as I say, kind of uh, wonderful people, and and uh, uh, it's it's a it's a part of the world that. I sometimes think we in New Zealand really under underappreciate and and uh, and don't treat well and don't treat mm. with sufficient respect. 
Mm. Yeah, there's a lot to be learned, that's for sure. I've, I've interviewed a number of people. This will be about episode number 300. So you can imagine over the, the few years I've been doing it, um, I've interviewed a few people who have Samoan background, some from Tonga as well. And it's always interesting to me the perspective that they bring, which is obviously similar to the Te Ao Maori perspective of looking to the future through the lens of the past. Or in other words, as somebody said, you know, walking backwards into the future. So you're always aware of that connection back through your history, your ancestry, you know, the relatives, um, which is, I think, something in the West we don't do very well at all. (laughs) So when you, what happened next? You came back to New Zealand or did you keep? Yeah, I I actually uh, went, went, uh, I sailed back to New Zealand, which, uh, and, and, you know, there's uh, quite a lot of sailing kind of woven through in my life when I get a chance. So I uh, hopped on a yacht and spent six months uh, sailing and uh, uh, got back to New Zealand. I wasn't quite sure where to work and eventually went to work for Shell BP Todd because I, I thought that I needed to understand the commercial world and get some training. And I heard that Shell gave good training. So I ended up in New Plymouth uh, helping Shell BP Todd make oil and gas. And uh, it was in the era when when really climate change was just starting to be understood. And uh, the early studies were were kind of coming through. And and increasingly, there was uh, uh, questioning around uh, around the sustainability of of, uh, uh, of oil and gas as a solution and uh, and I also kind of had had uh, um, some interesting dilemmas in working for a large uh, multinational company so uh, but I mm. but I love life in New Plymouth and and uh, um, had a had a great time made lots of friends and and, and enjoyed life as a sort of a young early 20s uh yeah so so that was great yeah that's awesome but then you mentioned that you'd spent time overseas as well when did that enter into the picture so i left uh when i left uh chill i went i went to yale uh in the states and did a master's in management uh and uh lots of majors including in finance and that was two-year course and really opened my eyes to to international uh not only international business but international society and and Yale was a really innovative program because it taught management across private sector public sector and not-for-profit sector and it it sort of the the uh, the philosophy was that most people who would graduate would work in probably you know at least two of those sectors if not three, or even if they just worked in one sector, they would have a lot of their career interacting with the other sectors. And it was, it was a very innovative course, uh, lots of stuff on uh, entrepreneurship, but particularly a lot also on organizational behavior and organizational psychology. Uh, so some really, some really interesting aspects, which I, which I loved. And I think I did more courses uh, during those two years than anyone ever has uh, had had until that until that time. So uh, so that was uh, that was a you know I had a real thirst for for learning uh, at that stage. Um, 
And that's a great environment to do it, especially if you've got other internationals coming into it yeah. as a as a university. It's one of the top ones, isn't it? Yeah, that no, was really interesting. And um, when I left, I, I again wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I'd come across somebody who I wanted to work for, and it was a it was a man called Ira Magaziner who at that stage had done a, a economic development study for the government of Sweden and. Had, it had resulted in the restructuring of the Swedish economy away from commodity businesses to high-value business, away from sort of shipbuilding to uh, to expensive yachts and and uh, and high-end uh, vessels, uh, away from commodity pulp and paper, through to fine papers, and and so his his whole thing was was working with tr uh, trade unions and civil society and companies in order to, to help uh, make that transition to better paying jobs and, and higher value economies. And, uh, yeah. and that, that, that really interested me because I saw that as, as kind of crucial, not only in terms of being intellectually in, interesting, but actually in terms of creating good job opportunities that would have higher pay and help societies to, to um, do well economically. Yeah. Uh, so I, I did that based in Rhode Island for five years. Uh, had some really interesting work, including with metropolitan New York and New Jersey, looking at uh, how to improve the manufacturing base of of, uh, uh, of an area around uh, New York and New Jersey, which just such a fascinating part of the world, um, and and various other things and. Uh, and started to do more in, in the crossover with environmental work because I've been, become much more aware of, of how this should be impacting more centrally with sustainability issues. Mm. And so up and left the US and went to the UK uh, and worked uh, with WWF uh, uh, just before the Earth Summit. So I went to the Earth Summit in 1992 uh, as as a member of the as an observer on the British government delegation, uh, which was which was fascinating because it was a signing of the framework convention on climate change, the convention on biological diversity, as well as uh, the Earth Summit's agenda itself, the Rio principles. And uh, I still to this day think that uh, there was a time when a really unique partnership could have been formed around. Uh, environment and, and development, which would have put put the world on a different course, but the leaders were not up to it. You know, the uh, I remember uh, George Bush Senior at that stage saying the American way of life is not up for negotiation, uh, and it wasn't. And so, developing countries also weren't prepared to come and negotiate, and in a way, it, it fell down in North. South, rich country, poor country dynamics. And it was such a wasted opportunity because it was a, 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 a time in, in which things, things were uh, changing. And uh, um, yeah, so at least, at least we got a climate change convention and a biological diversity convention out of it, even if subsequently over the next 30 years, countries did very little on on either of them so right. uh, uh, 
But but following that, and I I had a really interesting time with uh, people like Jonathan Porritt, uh and Sarah Park and and others in the UK. A whole group of of, of really fantastic people who are doing great work around how to take these principles of sustainable development forward and into Local Agenda 21 about local authority action, um, into ethical investment, uh, which really really helped me kind of understand the opportunities for investment um, and into kind of other other spheres. But but it was was a, uh, again, a, a a, a really interesting time of, of considerable change and promise, uh, some of which was has come to pass, but a lot which hasn't. Yeah. And just taking us back to that 1992 meeting, like, do you think it was down to the, just, was it the leaders? Like if there'd been somebody who stood up and said, we're going to make a change, you know, like, could it, do you think there could have been a, a flow on that would have, led to a different world than we are today or was it, it it was what it was you know it's it's a moment in time and 1992 was a very different world even to today 30 years ago yeah i i do believe if if there there had been leaders who showed leadership that that uh, we could have at least uh gone gone part of the way and and uh but the leaders were locked into into their way of looking at things and and uh, into their narrow self interest without understanding that actually our common interest was to the benefit of everyone and 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 the negotiations really came down to zero sum negotiations. It was kind of you know I win you lose negotiations when that was not the right framework. The right the right framework was let's cooperate and we can both benefit from from uh, a, a much better environment from real opportunities for developing countries for for just so many benefits which which were available and so i you know i ended up being really of course gutted by by the result but equally it uh, it was it was also an amazing experience and and kind of mind changer uh, in order in order for me to kind of then go on and do other things. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, it's always kind of saddening, isn't it? When you look at the past and you, you imagine what if, like, I'm just thinking of the coincidence of talking to you today in 2022, you know, that's 30 years ago we're talking about. And, and I do wonder if 30 years from now, 2052, you know, like what's it going to be like at that point in time. And then a hundred years from now, what will people look back on and and say they were starting to understand it, but they hadn't quite yet. And I think often it is this sort of philosophical perspective that you need to get beyond the detail of what's on the table and actually approach it as it's not a team against team thing. We're all in the same team actually. And it's not a case of the West against the East or the North against the South or the, developed countries against the undeveloped because ultimately we're all humans on the same planet it's uh it's just hard to get there isn't it that historical perspectives uh address well in in my favorite cartoon that i use for for mindful money which is people sitting in a 
post-apocalyptic world in a in a cave, uh, crouched around a fire, dressed in rags, and up on the the, the wall there's cave paintings of skyscrapers and beautiful cities and and you know wonderful things happening and and uh, somebody who's dressed in in rags of suit and tie sits, sits there and saying, well, for a beautiful moment in time, we were able to maximize shareholder value. <laughs> And and uh, you know there is uh, there is really that that feeling that that we become fixated on things that uh, after the fact you look at it and you say what were we thinking of yeah and and kind of you know sort of slightly cutting short that's that's my whole view of of finance you know that 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 really finance doesn't ask the question of what is the money doing. When you invest it, what what's the real world impact? Because they just talk about returns. They just talk mm. about financial risks. They don't talk about. So is this money uh, harming people? Is it is it committing human rights violations? Is it is it destroying uh, native forests and 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 those consequences? And just not part of the conversation, or haven't yeah. been until recently. And the exciting thing is that. Now, for various reasons, they are starting to become part of the conversation. Yeah, well, I'd love to lean into that conversation in a minute, mm -hmm. because I think that's a really big part of what you're doing, and I'd love to understand it. Um, I, I actually, I, I find it interesting, actually, because I've got young children, and I'm finding there's a lot of wisdom in children's books. And I know it's a bit of a classic, but the Lorax, you know, <laughs> from yeah. Dr. Seuss, and and it's just some basic things in there. But who speaks for the trees, you know, and and what happens when you cut down all the truffula trees and there's none left? And what do you do next? And it's just it's so well put because it's just this simple story for children. But I think there's a lot of us, you know, particularly in big corporations that maybe could be given a copy of that and, <laughs> and learn something. <laughs> Exactly. So what happened next? And, and I'm curious because you're, you're describing kind of a globetrotting, you know, existence. You're in Samoa and now you're in the States and now you're in the UK. Did you always feel a sense of identity like I'm a Kiwi doing these things? Or at some point were you thinking I'm never going to come back to New Zealand? Or was it always an intent to come back one day? Oh, no, it was always a Kiwi who, who was uh, enjoying global work because it was working on a stage that I... That I couldn't do in New Zealand, and and uh, but very much a, a, a Kiwi. I I left um, WWF to to uh, become director of an organisation called World Development Movement, a rather sort of fancy title. It's now called Global Justice Now, but it was very much a campaigning organisation about issues of uh, third world debt and the operation of of big companies in the, in the developing world. Uh, issues of climate change, which were which were starting to become real to developing countries around the transfer of financial resources out of the developing world and ending up in the rich world. So, so that those issues of injustice uh, became stronger to me in the, in that time than the conservation and environmental work that I was primarily doing at WWF and uh, and. Uh, World Development Movement was a campaigning organization at a time when there were massive debates about globalization, when there were people on the streets, when when the G8 was uh, uh, 
had had protests around around their meetings. Um, uh, one of uh, one of the issues was was around uh, uh, World Trade Organization, and I was very much involved in in issues around uh, uh, just rules on international trade. Uh, and uh, so so World Development Movement was was a uh, a uh, fantastic grassroots organization with a hundred local groups across the UK doing really good education, awareness raising and mobilization. Uh, and uh, um, it, it, was, it was just such a good time to be doing it when those, and, and uh, we were sort of backed up by really strong research. And so in a way we were, we were trying to be the solid research behind concerns over globalization to say it's not it's not the kind of internet and globalization of culture and and the the uh, the ways that people can connect internationally that's not the problem i mean the problem is the fact that the rules are being written in in favor of the rich and powerful and and particularly the powerful corporations and and disadvantaging others and and so so uh, uh, there were the that was uh, that was a, uh, uh, a a good time and and a, a really powerful time in terms of of some of those changes. And yeah. So was that based in the UK or where was that? Based in the UK, uh, based in a little office in Brixton in in uh, uh, a, a building and uh, uh, funnily enough, at that time, uh, a, a group of pranksters uh, called the Yes Men. Uh, set up and they uh, they made a film of themselves uh, impersonating the World Trade Organization and and uh, unbeknownst to me I was in their film uh, on the other side of an in- interview uh, where they had pretended to be the World Trade Organization and I, I was uh, arguing with them and and uh, they they subsequently built me into this film and came to see me in Brixton and and which was which is a very very funny thing to, to, to experience. Uh, I, went, I went to see it uh, in Auckland years later and I was going along to the film and said, said to my friend, I, I think I might be in this film. And I was, <laughs> I was sitting, sitting there with, with kind of 1,500 people in the theatre sort of shrinking down in my, my seat saying, what did I say? <laughs> very, very funny. <laughs> That's great. And, did, and a lot, did a lot on fair trade in those days as well as, as kind of a positive way that people could take action. A lot of stuff on on sustainability as 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 well as you know sort of so building some alternatives. It sounds like a lot of what you've been involved in. You're speaking, I guess, from from a voice that maybe the big corporations or governments wouldn't be wanting to hear. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, hmm. Is that a fair characterization? Or because I'm just curious. Because you you're still talking today about issues of uh, of justice ultimately, and how do we use our money, and how do we have impact as consumers in what we choose to invest in? As example, yeah. over the years, how have you maintained the energy to continue to campaign? Because it must get frustrating from time to time when you're you're speaking into a system where the big corporations don't want to listen or or make change. Yeah, although they're not monolithic, and and typically there are some some corporations that do want to listen and are on our side, uh, and people within those corporations that are on our side. So, 
So very often we're able to find allies to be able to, to help make changes that were really about building uh, the, the, the kind of, of, uh, of solutions that, that would be viable. So, so for example, on, on uh, uh, fair labour standards and, and supply chains, uh, uh, we set up something called the Ethical Trading Initiative, which uh, eventually got a third of the UK retail market behind it of corporations who were prepared to stand up and say, yes, we, we think that, that we should be stopping sweatshop labour and we should be giving workers a fair chance. We should be honouring the core labour rights. And so we're able to join together as NGOs, as trade unions with, uh, with, with some companies in order to be able to make progress on those kind of issues. Similarly, on fair trade, there were people like Anita Roddick at that time who was passionate about, about fair trade and exemplified fair trade. So, so you know, we were, we were working with, the allies and and not just uh, shouting from outside the tent and uh, and we you know the way to stay optimistic is to um, make sure you're making change and and not just to be sort of uh, frustrated because you you're not getting anywhere but but that's to some extent a result of your strategy if you're doing that and you're not making change then actually you, you need to be doing something different yeah that's a great point and it's encouraged i think for for me personally but also probably for the listeners as well because lots of the people who listen to this podcast are involved in doing something which is paradigm shifting or pushing boundaries in some ways and sometimes it can feel hard to continue on for me personally i find uh, that everybody's on a spectrum or on a journey and if i can help somebody get from this little point to this little point maybe they're not going to come all the way over here but you know on a lifetime scale then that will have played a role that then they in turn will talk to other people and so it's that flow on impact that it's really hard to measure it because you never know like this podcast i don't know the identities of the people who are listening to us talking i have no way to know who they are but I know that enough people listen, I get enough feedback where I know it, it is having an impact and it is worth putting my time and energy into. So, yeah, sorry, a little side distraction there, but I'm always trying to learn from people <laughs> on their journeys. So, yeah, t- talk us through the next um, time. And, and when did you end up coming back to New Zealand as well? I'm curious about that. So actually, I came back from from that role in the UK uh, Having uh, uh, married somebody from Wales, a uh, 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 very wonderful woman called Roz, and uh, with with two young kids, came back to New Zealand because I didn't want to bring up kids in the UK, and uh, we wanted to live in New Zealand. So, so I came back and headed up Oxfam New Zealand for eleven years. Um, and in that time, I uh, exercised kind of, I guess, a couple of my really strong passions. One, one was uh, uh, to orient the work of Oxfam much more towards the Pacific Islands and particularly the poorest societies in the Pacific Islands. A little, we, we did work in Samoa and Tonga and Fiji, but a lot more in Melanesia uh, where poverty is, is, uh, is very real. Uh, and uh, 
um, and has has real human consequences. Uh, so so uh, that was that was a, a kind of in a way a circling back for me. Uh, and in addition, the other the other side of it was to to continue work on some of the advocacy issues that I thought was really were really important. So advocacy on climate change, and I attended uh, uh, as part of initially as part of the New Zealand delegation, but then subsequently uh, as a leader in the Oxfam delegations to climate change talks, and uh, uh, and and World Trade Organization ministerial meetings. Uh, so a lot of that was was again operating at the global stage and trying to get changes to their rules on climate change. Uh, um, uh, we uh, set up a global campaign on climate change together with lots of other organisations in the run up to uh, the Copenhagen climate talks, the climate summit, when uh, that was a time when we really thought we were going to get an agreement. Uh, five years before we do, eventually did in Paris, uh, and uh, and and it ended up being a very hollow agreement. But over that period, two million people had taken action on the climate worldwide, uh, and it was it was a, a kind of a major global campaign in order to push countries to go further. You know, as usual, kind of I I, I left those talks. Uh, Kind of depressed, sick, hadn't slept for four days, and uh, um, but you know you you got to sort of step back and say, well, you know that actually laid the foundation for ultimately what happened in the Paris Agreement, then kind of the step on from that in Glasgow COP twenty six last year, you know these things have their own trajectory. And just when you think you're making changes, you don't. And when you least expect it, you make change. So, so it's important to uh, to to keep up the the long term perspectives on on those changes. And uh, um, yeah, so so that time at Oxfam was was great, and uh, I I kind of really enjoyed it. And uh, um, I had the pleasure of working with fabulous people who. Still get together as they call themselves ex fams, uh, and uh, uh, and and uh, I, uh, I I I kind of feel good about about uh, what we're able to do in that time. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It's kind of cool to how there was that connection back with Samoa as well, or the mm-hmm. Pacific Islands. That that was something that you could then bring, because I think the more I've reflected as I'm, you know, getting older, nothing and nothing in life is wasted everything that we do ends up being useful at some point in the future that you can't anticipate it, whatever it is you're going through right now, but it will, if it's a hard thing, it will give you empathy for people going through the same thing. If it's a, a cultural learning or a new place, it's bound to come up more in the future as well. Yeah. So true. Yeah. So at what point, I mean, we've kind of talked, you've been on the the edges of politics, I guess, in the sense of you've, You've been advocating, you know, involved in organizations pu- pushing for change. At what point did the Green Party and, and getting involved in actual politics as a politician emerge as a possibility for you? Is that had that been on your radar or it had been on the radar? And and I, as you say, I, I have for so long tried to influence politics from the outside. 
And then, you know, came a certain stage where I said, well, if I'm not going to do it now, I'm probably never going to do it. So, so maybe I should uh, influence politics from the inside. Um, it came from sort of Rod Donald, who, who came to me and said, hey, why don't you do this? And then uh, Russell Norman later on said the same thing. And by the time Russell came up, I, I actually said yes and left Oxfam and uh, stood as a candidate for, for the Green Party. Didn't get in immediately, but got in off the list in 2016 uh, when Kevin Haig uh, stepped aside and went to Forest and Bird. Uh, I went in as a Green Party list MP. and uh, But it was for a very short period of time uh, before the 2017 uh, election, when he only had kind of just over six months of, of, uh, of Parliament and... and uh, <laughs> It is an extraordinarily complex environment and hard to get uh, yourself into a position where you can really make deep change. And and uh, so I felt like I was still on on the road. And and then we were thrown into a tumultuous election, where the Green Party vote started out uh, at around twelve uh, percent, going up to fifteen, and ended up uh, at just over six. So so. Uh, I eventually ended up not not getting into Parliament and uh, uh, had to think again about what I was going to do. So, so yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting, your life, though. You've had a number of different experiences, haven't you? <laughs> and, in, and In between going to uh, politics, I actually had, had a really interesting uh, year and a half working for the Auckland University Business School uh, in setting up a sustainability programme across research, across teaching, across student involvement, across outreach to, to uh, business. And, and that was a really interesting time. And uh, um, so uh, it, it gave me a, a deep appreciation how um, academic institutions are virtually unmanageable. And, and uh, uh, I, was <laughs> disappointed, I was disappointed that, that uh, more didn't happen when I had to leave. But you know, yeah. So, so tell us about mindful money and when did that originate as an idea or a concept or, yeah, is that something that had been on your mind from before? Hey, in way, yeah, in a way, mindful money started in in 1992 when I was doing work on ethical investment in the UK and we we set up something called the Social Investment Forum, which was like an ethical investment network. But the, the whole idea, the proposition to me was that you could invest your money in ways that you'd feel good about, either earn good returns, um, and it would do good in the world. And, and it seemed to me like such a, a simple and compelling proposition. I could never understand why it never became mainstream. And so when I was looking for something to do after Parliament, I, I wanted to come back to this because I really started to feel maybe we're at tipping point. Maybe we're at the stage where this is absolutely going to take off and people are going to look at it and they're going to say, well, yeah, why, why wouldn't we do this? And the thing that really changed in the meantime is that the evidence started amassing around the, the financial returns from investing ethically. And it's not like buying organic or free-range eggs that cost a whole lot more 
than 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 caged hen eggs. Actually, it, the opposite is is tending to be true. That that if you look at the massive evidence, what it says over over the past couple of decades is that the returns from ethical investment have been at least as high, if not higher, than from conventional investing. So, so as the head of uh, uh, an asset manager, management called BlackRock said, the question isn't why would you invoke, why, why wouldn't you, you invest ethically? It's kind of why not? And, and I think that for me was the proposition that I wanted to carry to the New Zealand public. Mm. Um, when I had been myself looking to invest ethically, um, a question that I wanted to know is, I want to invest in a fund through KiwiSaver or I want to invest in a fund through, through investment management. So which one would I choose? And the core thing I wanted to know is where does my money go? What companies is it invested in? And you cannot find that information out in an intelligible form. You can find, if you dig into New Zealand companies' office, you can find a database that gives you the name of, of companies, but then you can't contextualize that by understanding what companies they are without doing months of research. And so what Mindful Money does is it does that research, and then because we're constituted as a charity, it makes it available as a free, free service. To people, and it's about transparency, and it's about saying, "Here's the information that every investor should have about the portfolio of companies that they're that they're investing in. They should know where their money goes." Mm -hmm. And that that uh, to me was really an important thing about mindful money. But but even more than that, the the long term game plan is not just to provide that transparency but actually to shift capital, to shift capital from the, the investment in weapons and fossil fuels and gambling and pornography and, and you know, all things that, that are not consistent with the values of, of most New Zealanders into the things that are, into things that, as you well know from your work, Stephen, into impact investing, into stuff like renewable energy and social housing and clean water and a better environment. You know, these, these are things where, where we should be able to provide more opportunities for people to be able to invest positively and to feel good about where they invest their money. Invariably, as Mindful Money has started, what we provide is we provide the information on how to avoid investing in the really bad stuff. And that's essential information that I think everyone should know. We make it really easy for people on the Mindful Money website. It's easy to see the information, and it's really easy to switch a KiwiSaver into a more ethical KiwiSaver. So, so that's been our starting point. Now we're increasingly trying to push the investment spectrum uh, towards creating more opportunities for investing positively in the things that matter. Um, so that's, uh, uh, that's kind of work in progress and, and we've been going for two and a half years. And uh, last year we had triple the number of people come to our website and choose a, uh, a more ethical fund using the mindful money tools on our website. So, so you know, things are, things are tracking along. 
uh, and uh, but but the next phase is going to be even uh, going to be even more fun. Yeah, that's really great. And I applaud your efforts because I think it's really important what you're doing. Um, and that's one of the reasons that you've been on my list for so long to, to talk with, because I think we need more education, more people out there talking about these types of topics. And I, I've attended a few of your, because um, you do some video Zoom calls with experts talking about kind of topics, don't you? You're kind of picking themes like um, social housing, for example, and then you'll get three or four people on a panel and and hear from them. So I attended one of those recently, and I was impressed with how many people were there. You know, like you get on Zoom sometimes and you see, oh, there's 15 people or 20 people, and that's pretty good. But on that one I was on, there was hundreds from memory. It was like a really well-attended thing. So, um, and Actually, what happens these days is that People are so busy. They never, they never get onto Zoom live. They, they watch the videos afterwards, and and so we get, you know, orders of magnitude more people watching videos or yes. podcast or listening to podcasts afterwards. But we 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 started this series uh, during COVID when when we were planning some in person events, and we said. Gee, we can't do those in COVID anymore. So we pivoted into a series of 30 seminars. We had a break for six months and then said, well, let's do some more. And so we're 15 into this series of 20. Um, so they, they they have been really good uh, on Wednesday evenings at 7.30. And uh, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure to put those on. In addition, we, we do kind of seminars and workplaces to tell staff where they can get an ethical KiwiSaver. Uh, we do outreach. We've got an ethical investment guide. We do lots of other things. But possibly one of the most significant things we've done is, is set up an awards event. And the awards are, are for the best ethical KiwiSaver and investment fund and best impact investment fund, best climate change action uh, best financial advisor and best kind of media reporting, etc. So, so those kind of, of things. But what it's done is, is it's really helped define some best practice. And in ethical investment, members of the public are often confused by by kind of what it really means. You know, what what is what is a what does a fund do when they do ethical investment? And and into that kind of vacuum, we've been able to in a way, set some best practice standards around what, what are the key levers that funds can, can do. They can avoid bad stuff. They can engage with companies in order to influence those companies to improve their performance. And then they can invest in, in the, the solutions and the positive impact companies. And, and so we've been, we've been sort of putting metrics to that in the context of the awards and uh, those metrics are going to be included on our website in the next uh, in the next iteration of the website. So uh, we've got those awards, second annual awards coming up in late uh, June this year. And uh, last year we were very nervous about the inaugural awards, and it turned out to be a great success, and everyone loved it. And it was a great meeting ground for 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 people from the mainstream investment community at kind of CEO level and chief investment officer level together with people who had impact investment solutions. And so that's kind of where we're going to be spending more time and saying, how can we leverage 
for example, this $90 billion of KiwiSaver funds to say, how can we, how can we leverage this and to invest more in things that really make a difference in our society? And that's, that's going to be a, a real theme for our work uh, over the next couple of years. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think, I think what you're doing is really important. I think that's really an excellent thing to identify and acknowledge where people are doing good, you know, through a fund or whatever. Um, people, some people listening know me as the voice of the podcast. Some others know that I'm also a lawyer doing structuring and other things for impact. But I'm also, the other hat I wear is I'm the chair of community finance, which is an impact investing um, initiative. Um, and I know James Palmer is somebody that you know, um, and he attended the awards at the last um, the last not only, ones. Not only attended, but won an award. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Very, very justifiably for their great work on, on basically setting up the structures to channel uh, uh, mainstream investment funding into social housing. So, so, so very much, you know, he is one of the people who's doing really good work in the space to enable that to happen. And, and those kind of examples are what we want to take forward to say, why, why aren't we doing more of this? You know, why aren't we able to use these mainstream investment funds that you and I have in our KiwiSaver funds and our investment funds into things that are really important? Yeah, exactly. And, and the, the finish of that story is when we won that award, it was a really big boost in the arm for everybody in the team because I was like, oh, there's some recognition here. You know, like we've been working hard for a long time and, and it was really, really special. So thank you for putting those things on. Yeah. And, and I guess if people are interested in finding out more, the website's probably the best landing point and then probably signing up for a newsletter so they can get updates on when the next calls are and things like that. Yep, so uh, www.mindfulmoney.nz and there's a sign up to, to newsletter there. Um, yeah, the, the other area that, that, that we are thinking of becoming more active in is, uh, is the governance of, of companies. Um, overseas, there are some fantastic campaigns that will mount pressure around company AGMs and through shareholder resolutions around social and environmental issues, around climate change, forcing transparency on climate change, forcing targets on climate change. But we haven't seen any of that in New Zealand. So, so this is something that Mindful Money is looking at, uh, at doing in future. And, and uh, I think it'll be an important addition to our, to our work around uh, how we can push the agenda forward financially in order to, to kind of have good outcomes. Yeah, it'd be interesting to collaborate with some of the people who come to the awards, for example, but also like the Aotearoa Circle and some of the work that they've been doing on sustainable finance and things. And there's, I think there's growing numbers of groups who are interested in it. Um, there's, a, there's a lawyers group for climate action, as an example. There, there's a number of different things going on that, um, yeah, probably together more impact, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I was very much involved in the formation of the uh, Sustainable Finance Roadmap, which uh, which has then given rise to uh, the new body called Toitutahua, the Centre for Sustainable Finance, uh, and they're doing they're doing fantastic work. Uh, and uh, so, you know, they are a, a really huge addition to the architecture of of. Uh, 
organizations who can work broadly across the finance sector and they're having uh, having an impact already it's great great to be working with them we did a lot of stuff with them for example in trying to encourage more funds and uh, uh, to go to make net zero commitments because internationally around cop26 so all these international uh, fund managers who who were pledging to to go to net zero and coming up to cop26 there was absolute silence from from new zealand and so we set up a coalition to try to uh, encourage more action on net zero and now we're looking at ways to follow up to provide support and encouragement to to funds but also some accountability to say now you've made pledges how's it going are you, yeah. are you actually doing it and and uh, you know while while a lot of our work is encouragement a fair bit of it is also challenging greenwashing and making sure that people are accountable fund managers are accountable for uh, actually taking action on these things rather than just talking the talk. Yeah, yeah, it's so important. Impact washing, social washing, greenwashing, <laughs> like that's, the, that's the, the, the cup that people could drink, isn't it? If, they, um, if they're not actually reporting on what they say that they're doing. So, yeah. But I guess the good news is, is that most of the New Zealand investment sector are somewhere on this journey. Uh, some of them may be fairly early, others are doing fantastically, but it's, it really, we're just seeing a huge amount of movement. And, uh, um, you know, as you said, in talking about the impact of your podcast, attribution is always a really difficult thing. And, and all we can do is we can say, we're trying to lay the conditions for these changes to happen. Uh, yeah, yeah. And we're, we're building... We're building momentum where we can. We're pushing things along where we can. We're, we're encouraging and uh, facilitating change. And uh, I, feel, I feel pretty good that things are headed in the right direction, but nowhere near fast enough for, for the scale of particularly the climate crisis. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. But I, yeah, we each do what we can, right? And I think for me, it's been a case of realizing that you're probably not going to get the act of parliament uh, within three months of campaigning for a new legal form that sits between charity and company, you know, that that embraces social enterprise. But you can write papers that get read by people that mean that at some point in the future, that will just become of course, we're going to do this, you know, and, and I can't predict when it will happen, but hopefully over time that happens. And for me, it's been highlighted recently because I, I do lots of thinking and writing about governance and the fact that directors should be having more in mind than corporate returns. And I know that this resonates with what things that you say. And then you look at Duncan Webb's private bill coming in to amend the director duties in section 131 and say that directors may consider, and then there's a list, including the treaty, the environment, employees, you know, other things. And I think even five years ago, if that had been proposed, it would have been like, what are you talking about? Whereas today, I feel like most people are thinking, yeah, okay, it, you know, yeah. like it's, it's, it's more accepted, but it's that laying the groundwork for it, that's the hard stuff that then it's just becomes, yeah, we can see that. Um, it's like the Greenpeace decision, you know, 10 years of litigation with charity services 
um, to, to fight over whether they're a charity or not. And in the end, yep, they're a charity. And, and everyone's like, yep, that that's, it, it's how it should be. Whereas 10 years ago, it wasn't that way, you know? So anyway, <laughs> it's long, long, long scale change that we're talking about, not instant. Yeah. 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 And, uh, uh, and I am a strong believer also in, and needing different levers for, for change, and we need the green pieces. And, and I'm also chair of 350 Aotearoa. I'm on the board of Sustainable Business Network. I'm involved across different positions of the change spectrum, yeah. and I, I think that's what's required because, you know, you, you need somebody to write the legal papers and make the arguments, but you also need somebody from the outside saying, so why isn't this happening? And and so so it's and you need encouragement for the leaders and and so on. So so it's that uh, as I've kind of learned over over many years of trying to get these changes happening, it's it's the way those coalitions work together and are able to be mutually reinforcing uh, that becomes really important. Yeah, I agree completely. And that's why if people look at my bio, they sometimes get confused because they see I'm involved in lots of different things, like involved with the XRB and and charity services and community finance and doing a podcast and like on this other board. And But the reason is that we've got to get out of our silos that mean that, you know, as a lawyer, I just talk to other lawyers. Or if I'm involved in the environment, I just talk with other people who care about the environment. And if what you need is that broader picture to say there's a connection point here between sustainable business network and an event they're doing and look over here um this group over here that's completely unrelated you know chartered accountants of australia and new zealand or something but wait a minute there's a connection point and actually there's a collaboration opportunity and um i came across this really cool thing on linkedin i'll send you a picture of it and it says characteristics of change makers and it says they are system thinkers. So someone who has the ability to see how there's interconnection in a bigger picture and zoom between the micro and the macro. There's designers and makers. So someone who understands the power of design and innovation tools and how those things happen. There's connector and convener, someone who has relationships across the different areas. And then the leadership and storytelling telling the story so that you can get the message out across all these different groups. Um, and it's hard work, but um, I want to yeah, finish, I guess, by saying thank you for continuing to lead in this area within that particular wheelhouse of the um, mindful money and thinking about sustainably using what we have in a more meaningful way. And I've really enjoyed learning more about your background because um, I know I could Google you and find out a bit more, but hearing from you, it's been really good to know about that, you know, Samoan experience and what that was like, and then the time overseas, and then how that led to getting involved in politics and then leading to what you do today. So thank you very much for your time. And we can put links in the show notes to all of the things that we've talked about as well. Cool. So thanks very much for having me on, Stephen. And, and uh I love the work you do with the Seeds podcast, but also you work more broadly on, on uh, structures for, for enterprise and, and uh, uh, but also you work on impact investment. And, uh, and I guess you've got a big under, uh, 
conference coming up and and you managed to to get a lot done so so uh, congratulations on all of that yeah thank you well it's been great to have you on the show and um, if people are interested to know more they can click through and find it and i do encourage people to check out all the resources that you've got on your site so thank you very much for joining me barry thanks for having me on well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Barry. For me, there was a lot of different things that stood out. I love the clear passion that he's got for this topic of how can we help people use their money better? And I do encourage you to check out the links in the show notes because there's a constant stream of amazing information that comes through in his YouTube videos and interviews and articles. There's a lot of great content that you could learn. From. If you enjoyed this, then why not tell one other person about the show? Until next time.